please open your Bibles to the book of Revelation and chapter 13. The book of Revelation, chapter 13. If you're visiting with us this morning, um, we're more than delighted to have you. We encourage you to stay with us after service for a time of fellowship in the fellowship hall. Uh, But you're entering into uh, the middle of our study of the book of Revelation and Uh, Particularly here, we are in the middle of a section of the Revelation, chapter 12, 13, and 14, which is one section of this glorious book. Uh, A book of great hope for believers, beloved. This is not some mystical type of thing that is not to be understood. This is to be understood for God's people in this day to be encouraged to persevere in the faith. Amen? So I'm going to read the entire chapter. We did get through it last service, and I trust that we'll get through it this service as well. And the word of God reads, Revelation chapter 13. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months." It opens its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it, derives, it deceives rather those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Title of the message is Two Beasts of the Dragon. May the Lord bless his word to our hearts this morning with a deeper, richer understanding of eternity 
and who rules and reigns now. Amen? In his book, entitled Christ and Time, theologian Oscar Coleman, he lived during World War II in Europe, and he also taught there. He uses two terms in that book. One, D-Day. The other, V-Day. D-Day and V-Day. Now, D-Day, short for Decision Day, was the day in which the Allied forces of World War II landed on Normandy Beach and established a, a beachhead or a foothold that allowed them further advancement in the war. Generals on both sides recognized that the outcome of the war was decided on that fateful day in June of 1944. They understood that if the Nazis had driven the Allied forces back into the sea, that Germany would have won the war. But since the Allied armies triumphed at Normandy, they sealed the eventual doom of Germany. That was D-Day. V-Day stands for Victory Day or V-E Day, uh, Victory in Europe Day. And that marked the surrender of the enemy and the liberation of Europe, which came a year later, May 1945. Now, what happened between D-Day, 1944, and V-Day, May 1945? Did the Germans hold up the white flag of surrender? Did Hitler go into hiding at that point? Answer, no. Instead, there were many months of suffering and struggle, much bloodshed in those 11 months. Several bloody battles took place as the Allied armies gradually pushed back the Nazi forces into Victory Day. Now, Coleman, who wrote this book, Christ in Time, says that the Christian dwells between D-Day and V-Day. That's where you live. The decisive battle has already been fought but the victory day has yet to arrive. D-Day has been established. V-Day is yet to come. And I want to apply that image to Revelation 12 and 13 this morning. As you recall, in Revelation chapter 12, verse 5, it sums up for us the very birth, the life, the ministry, the death, the resurrection, the ascension, and the crowning of the Lord Jesus Christ. While at the same time, we see the red dragon that was hurled out of heaven, Satan, in verses 7 to 9 of chapter 12. Revelation 12 describes for us D-Day, when the decisive battle had been fought and won. So the cross and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is God's D-Day. And like the Germans of World War II, Satan knows that the war is lost. He knows his time is short, Revelation 12, 12. But question, does he wave the white flag of surrender? Has he gone into hiding? And the answer is, of course, no. Although his power has been broken, he continues to fight. D-Day has come. V-Day has yet to arrive. And that is the main point this morning. Satan has lost, but he still fights. Having been cast out of heaven, knowing that his time is short, he furiously makes war on the rest of the woman's offspring, chapter 12, verse 17, which is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. He goes after those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Now, as we enter into chapter 13, 
this chapter defines for us the means in which the devil uses to unleash persecution upon God's people. Chapter 13 teaches us that he uses two agents. One is a beast from the sea. The other is a beast from the land or from the earth. And remember again, beloved, that the book of Revelation is apocalyptic literature. It is symbolic. It is a pictorial filled with graphic symbolism. And if we get that right, we'll get the book of Revelation right, okay? So the first agent we meet in verses 1 through 10, this is the beast that comes up out of the sea. The second agent is uh, revealed in verses 11 through 18, and this is the beast who rises up out of the earth. But first and foremost, the observation that we see at the outset here in this chapter is a counterfeit trinity. A counterfeit trinity. Verse 2 tells us that the dragon gave the first beast power. He gives him his throne. He gives him great authority. When we get down to verse 12, it says that the second beast uses his power and authority so that people of the world, unbelievers, will worship the first beast. This resembles what John says about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father sends the Son. The Son sends the Spirit. The Son does the work of the Father. The Spirit points to the work of who? Of the Son. The Spirit glorifies the Son. The Son glorifies the Father. We see the resemblance here. It's imitation. The second beast points to the first beast. The first beast points to the dragon. Satan. So Revelation 13 is nothing less than an unholy imitation of the triune God. This is a counterfeit trinity to draw unbelievers throughout the world to itself itself. We'll see what itself is in a moment. In Revelation 20, we see that these three also share a common destiny, and that is that they will burn in a lake of fire and sulfur. That's their destiny, and that's a sealed destiny. Notice first this dragon at the end of verse 17 of chapter 12. As he persecutes the woman, those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus, that's the church, that's the bride of Christ, he stood, notice, on the sand of the sea. This is a picture that encompasses the whole world where land and sea meet. The dragon's agenda is to pursue those who keep the word of God. The testimony of Jesus. It's his testimony. It's his work. He's the only way. He came. He laid down his life. He upheld the law first, laying his life down on behalf of those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, securing their salvation, sealing them with the Holy Spirit, a promise of eternal security bought by the blood of the Lamb. The dragon stands on the shore from where he now summons help to persecute the church. And in response, the devil's allies are now introduced and described for us in chapter 13. Two beasts emerge, one from the sea, one from the land. And these are the two arms for which the dragon now persecutes the church. Notice the first beast in verse 1. And I saw a beast rising up out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. This is a mirror-like image of the dragon, isn't it? When we go back to chapter 12, we read a very similar uh, description of the dragon. But see, the dragon is the power behind this first beast. 
The dragon calls the first beast from the sea, who's an image bearer of the dragon itself, and this is almost like the imitation of the father sending the son. Verse 2, and the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth, and to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. So here's a picture of speed and of power and of cruelty. Speed, like a leopard, who swiftly stalks and captures its prey. You've seen Animal Planet, yeah? You have a bear that swipes at its prey. A bear is so powerful they can flip over cars, as the commercial shows, just for a French fry today. It will swipe the head of its enemy and just remove faces, remove heads. Powerful. And then a lion who devours its prey with its teeth. It's vicious. So what does this beast symbolize? It takes us back to previous revelation granted to us through Daniel, which we looked at this morning. That was our opening reading. Notice, in Daniel's vision, chapter 7, verse 3, four great beasts came up out of the sea different from one another. The first was like a what? A lion. In verse 5, behold, another beast, a second one was like a bear. In verse 6, after this I looked and behold another like a leopard. Verse 7, after this I saw in the night visions and behold a fourth beast, terrifying, dreadful, exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it and it had ten horns. So the beasts of Daniel's vision represent, as you know, four successive powerful kingdoms. You have Babylon that appeared as a lion. The Medo-Persian Empire, which appeared as a bear. You have the Greek Empire, which appears as a leopard. And then the Roman Empire is this indescribable monster-like creature. The devil then is pictured as taking on a form, if you will, of a persecuting government power. Jesus came, he's almighty God, and he took on the form of what? Of a man. Jesus became a man. Here, this, this, this beast, or the dragon, takes on this form of a persecuting government by way of the first beast, which has gone on throughout time both successively and successfully persecuting God's people. So the, re, the, the beast here rising up out of the sea is, is a composite figure of Daniel's vision. You just take all of this together and that's, what being, that's what's being depicted for us here. Teaching us that this beast represents worldly political powers who persecute the people of God. And that the power of Satan often operates behind these worldly governments. Verse 3, notice one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed this beast. Now, it's interesting, the same Greek phrase is used here for this mortal wound to the head, as we see in chapter 5, verse 6, a lamb standing as though it had been slain. So he appears to have been slain but stands here again alive. In chapter 2 of the Revelation, verse 8, we see that Jesus died and came to life. 
Here in Revelation 13, 14, the beast was slain, but it yet lives. See the imitation. So the beast is an image of Satan. It's an image of of the dragon, but an imitator of Christ. Wanting to be in the place of Christ, gaining the affection, gaining the allegiance of those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life. The world. Now, this mortal wound here, that's a question for speculation, and much speculation has been provided um, over the years. Uh, The most feasible suggestion, um, applying this to the first century, would uh, be probably to that of, of Nero. There was a rumor that surfaced in that day that Nero, who had committed suicide, didn't really die, but he, he's come back and he's ready to return to wreak vengeance. That was the rumor going around then. But even so, the symbolism here is much broader than that. It's much greater than that. And think about this. The revival of any powerful world entity, of any institution, after it suffers serious trouble, once it rises to power again, seems to the masses as to being invincible. World powers that rise, they fall, they are restored, and they stand. Uh, It causes people to say, well, how can you stand against this? How can you overcome this? Now, we must remember the broader historical interpretation of Daniel's vision, which we just looked at, the rise and fall of four kingdoms. One rises up and falls. There's another one to take its place. Another one rises, it falls. Another one takes its place. And that depicts the healing of the wounded beast who stands behind all those powers, all those governments, you see. It appears, one of its heads appears to have been wounded, but it rises up again and again and again and again. So this beast is an institution that rises out of the sea of humanity. And the Bible refers to sinful humanity as a troubled sea. In Isaiah 57, verse 20, But the wicked are like a tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet. And its waters toss up mire and dirt. So the sea becomes a symbol for the rebellion of humanity at large, and a place from which opposition arises or ascends against God. And that's what man does. And behind it, you have this beast who points all glory to the dragon to cause people to rise up against God by way of governmental powers. And then how do the people respond? Verse 4, they worship the dragon for he had given his authority to the beast and they worship the beast saying, who is like the beast? Who can fight against what? against it. They look at these powers of state, they marvel at these empires, and they say, look at this manpower, look at this today, technology. Look at the technology we live in today. Who can possibly resist them? So they worship and they follow. Watching all this World War II history as of late. Um, Remember what happened in Pearl Harbor? Seemed as though it devastated us, but we rose out of it again. Mighty America, right? 9-11, think it just flattened us. We rose up again. In many powerful empires have risen up once again. So in following the beast, these unbelievers, they do the bidding of the beast. Just as those who follow Jesus do the will of Jesus. 
So the whole world here refers to the unregenerate. It's not the whole world without exception. Um, The whole world in Revelation, or those who dwell upon the earth, always refers to the unbelieving masses. Those, once again, whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the earth. Now, in the first century, Rome was the biggest threat to the first century church. And notice verse 5. The beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for how long? 42 months. It opens its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. So this beast is a merging of all the threats that have plagued God's people from the time of the Israelites throughout the New Testament age that utters haughty and blasphemous names against God. Anything that stands in the place of Christ is blasphemy. Anybody that says it's Christ plus anything is blasphemy. Note the power that's permitted to this beast, verse 7. It was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given to it, given over to every tribe of the people and language and nation, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world, the book of life of Lamb that was slain. So the worldly powers make war on the saints. And a saint, don't forget, beloved, if you're a Christian, you're a saint. Anyone who's in Christ, anyone who's covered by the blood of the Lamb is a saint. You are saints. So although the church is indeed indestructible, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not what? Prevail against her. Here, it seems as though it suffers loss of its voice through way of persecution. And we saw this back in chapter 11 with the two witnesses, which are a picture of the church, that lie dead in the street. They appear to be trampled, but they rise up again before an unbelieving world. In verse 8, we see that non-believers will worship this beast. All who, dwell will wor- all who dwell on the earth will worship it. In other words, they worship the Antichrist system. They worship the dragon, anything that is anti-Christ, while Christ's church is apparently being conquered. Notice here in verse 9, In the middle of all this, there's this great encouragement. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. So genuine believers here are exhorted to discern true from the false. To persevere, if anyone has an ear, we've heard that repeated exhortation a number of times to the seven churches in chapters two and three. Encouraging believers not to compromise under the pressure of persecution for their faith. That's what these people were facing, beloved. They really were not being able to work. They really were not being able to buy food because of their professed faith in Jesus Christ. They were outcasts. They were being thrown into prison, we see in Revelation chapter 2. And many of them, some of them, were facing death. And Jesus said, be faithful unto what? Unto death. So verse 10 is informing the church that for some, imprisonment and death are unavoidable 
because it's been preordained as such. If it's appointed for you to die by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. (laughs) If it's appointed for you to suffer for the namesake of Christ in your college class as those who sit in the seat of scoffers mock you, it's appointed that you will be scoffed at and mocked for the name of the glory of Jesus Christ, for his greater purposes, beloved. So the emphasis here is not on punishment of the wicked, but on the suffering of God's people. And here then is the call for endurance and faith of the saints. Endure, beloved. The word of God, testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's his testimony, as I said. We testify of him. He's the one that said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He's the one that laid his life down. He's the one that upheld the law. He's the one that rose from the dead. He's the one that's ascended. He's the one that rules. He's the one that reigns. He's the one that wrote your name in the Lamb's book before he created anything. That's his testimony. Now, antichrist governments have come. Antichrist governments have gone. And they persecute the church. And the time will probably come where we'll see it in America. It wasn't but 50 years ago, beloved, that they took prayers out of school. Ten Commandments, not on courthouses, not in schools. No, we won't have it, says the government. Crosses being removed from war memorials. Well, because the ACLU says no, so the government crumbles, and now the government stands and says, no, we won't have it. Now, with all that being said, there's a question here for us. And that is this. Does this mean that we're always supposed to regard this state as a monster for us as believers today? Answer, no. Because if we did, then it would contradict the instruction we're given in 1 Peter, the instruction we're given in Romans 13, which says, let every person be subject to what? Governing authorities. For there's no authority. Don't miss this, beloved. There is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. This is not a dualistic society. Satan is not the dual opponent of God. He is not an equal power. He is under the sovereign authority of God for God's greater purposes. He is a tool. Martin Luther said the devil is God's devil. So God has ordained the state as a common grace, on one hand, to both believer and unbeliever alike, to establish law, to establish order, to keep society, beloved, from descending into absolute chaos. Imagine. But Christians are to obey the state, which is ordained by God for the glory of God, unless, beloved, it oversteps its bounds and demands that you worship it. Then you say no. Or if it demands that you take action that is contrary to the word of God, that's when we stand and that's when we resist. That's when we say no go. That's what Daniel did. Under the likes of Nebuchadnezzar. He served faithfully there, beloved. And he knew this. That God rules over all kingdoms and gives authority to whom he wills. What about his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? They're they're facing the fiery furnace. What did they say on that day? They said this, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. He will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, if he sovereignly chooses not to deliver us, 
Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. We see that in Daniel 3. That's where we say no. But until then, we abide and we obey. So this dragon then, this first dragon, this first, this dragon rather, gives his authority to this first beast, which is a persecuting power. That's the picture. And the persecuting power is empires or, or, or governmental rule that persecutes the people of God. Okay, notice now the second beast. That's another kind of beast altogether. Then I saw another beast rising up out of the earth. It had two horns, not ten, it had two like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. So the first one comes up out of the sea, the second one out of the earth, the first one had ten horns, the second one has two little horns, two little spikes. Apparently seems helpless. Two sprouting little horns on its head like a little lamb. (laughs) Gentle. It's a dragon in sheep's clothing. It speaks like a dragon. Verses 12 and 13, this beast with two horns appears to produce all kinds of tricks, brings down fire from heaven, ordering people to make the statue or the first beast a place of worship. An image to be bowed down to, so to speak. This is probably something like the miracles of Moses. You remember Moses stood there and he, by the power of God, performed true miracles and then the magicians of Pharaoh showed up and what they do, all they could do was imitate those miracles. They were not true miracles. Imitated those miracles and that's what this beast does. The devil can't do anything. He can't create anything, beloved. He can only do what God allows him to do. He can't pull off miracles. God's the miracle worker. He's a ripoff artist here. Now, these could be great signs of environmental or or cultural, social transformation, perhaps, where the world just stands by and goes, oh, look at the power. Isn't this great? And they're deceived. But whatever the case is here, this beast simply attempts to imitate Christ while he speaks like a dragon blaspheming Christ all the way along. Verse 14, it makes the earth and its, and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. Now, the description here indicates that the living beast didn't experience some literal bodily resurrection, beloved. That is not what's going on here. This healing was an apparent fatal wound. Right? Back in verse 3, its head seemed to have a mortal wound. Now, don't forget this. At the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Satan, that serpent of old, that dragon was critically wounded. Stripped of all of his power, remember? That Christ made a a public spectacle of Satan and his demons. So there he was destroyed, but here now he appears to have been healed. He still has some influence, according to the sovereign plan and purpose of God but he's a counterfeit expression of the lamb who was slain. In verse 15, he causes the image to speak. This is also an imitation. Those who do not worship the image, they will be killed. Those who do not submit, they shall be slain. They shall be martyred. So the second beast out of the earth works behind the scenes to give attention to the first beast who came out of the sea. It's like the Holy Spirit points to the work of Jesus Christ who came to bring glory to the Father. 
So state religions often represent their governments or rulers by way of a statue or an image, and that's what Shadrach and Meshach, Meshach and Abednego were called to do, is bow down to this large image. In the first century, if you didn't say Caesar is Lord, you didn't eat, you didn't work, and eventually you didn't live. Caesar is Lord. So in verse 16, he orders that all peoples, whether they're rich, whether they're poor, whether they're powerful, whether they're common, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead. Verse 17, those who do not receive the mark cannot buy, they cannot sell, they cannot engage in business. Now, what does it mean? That's what you're waiting for, right? What's this mark? What is this mark? Well, as you're well aware, there have been all kinds of answers provided for us over the years as to what this mark is. Movies have been scripted, many books have been written, providing all kinds of fictional answers for us, beloved. This mark at one time was uh, depicted as a, as a union trade card. And in order to receive this union trade card, you'd have to deny faith in Jesus Christ in order to buy or sell or to be able to do business. You have to deny the faith. Well, once the electronic age kicked in, it is now referred to as an embedded chip that goes underneath your skin, and it will be attained also by denying Christ and will be required to be able to buy or sell or you know, go to Home Depot or Vaughn's or whatever. Now, beloved, it's important for us to remember that John is not writing about something that will be, but rather in the, in the far long gone future, right? For the far out 2,000 years from his time future, he's talking about something that is near and as chapter one said, must soon take place. Revelation is not a vision communicated through a letter to seven churches in Asia Minor that pushes everything 2,000 years into the future, beloved but rather something that was going on then and will continue to occur until the Lord Jesus Christ returns in glory. Therefore, every church of every age can be encouraged by the book of Revelation. Amen? Amen. They don't have to do codes and read sideways and crossways to come up with the meaning of the text. They can read it at face value, cite the Old Testament numerous times, and understand the greater, grander picture to encourage the people of God as they suffer for the name of God. So as thrilling as those books are to read, I don't know if you really want to waste your money on that, beloved. But do this. Contrast this mark. This mark that we see here, contrast this with the mark on the hand or the forehead of God's people. What did he say? Deuteronomy 6. You shall bind them, that is the commandments of God, as a sign on your hand. Meaning, strength in action and they shall be as frontals on your forehead, in other words, in your mind. It's the instruction to the Israelites. So Revelation tells us what the mark of the beast is anyhow. When we get to chapter 14, verse 9, we read this. If anyone worships the beast and its image, the word and there, that is, receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured out full strength into the cup of his anger. So receiving the mark of the beast is the same as worshiping the beast. Worshiping the beast is the same as receiving the mark of the beast. So this mark of the beast is as figurative as is drinking the wine of God's cup of wrath. It's a picture. God's wrath poured into a cup is a picture 
So is this mark. It's not literal. Revelation chapter 14, verse 11, we, we read that hell is for these worshipers of the beast and its image, whoever received the mark of its name. In other words, all who have an allegiance to the beast, they're marked. All who have allegiance to Christ, they are what? Sealed. If you're in Christ, you're sealed. I'm in Christ. Do you see a seal on me? No, I do not see a seal on you. It's an invisible seal. We studied that chapters ago. Same is true with this mark. It is not a visible mark. It's an invisible mark. It is a picture for us for the sake of understanding that there's two groups of people in the world, no in-betweeners. Notice that this mark of the beast is also a number of its name, verse 18. This calls for wisdom, he says. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his, the beast, number is 666. Now, that number has also been written about. It's all kinds of rock and roll album covers with 666, you know, and 666. And all this, you know, the horns of the devil and all this crazy type of thing. People have made a fortune on this. Now, many have attempted to connect this number with a numerical value of one's name. And most popular to that uh, method would be Nero in the first century. But you do have to jump a couple trampolines to get there. But Nero um, was the name that was most popular um, in fulfilling the 666. But what we have to do here is remember the symbolic value. And if we remember the symbolic value of the number, because all of Revelation is symbolic, I think we'll be able to stay on the right path here. If divine completeness or perfection is expressed as 777, we see that 666 falls continually short of 777. The number of man is six. He was created on the sixth day. William Hendrickson says this, the number of the beast is 666, that is failure upon failure upon failure. So 666 is, is the trinity, Satan, the beast, and the false prophet, his trinity, his imitation trinity, also considered as man's religion or man-made philosophy, which all falls short of true divinity, you see. Take Marxism, Confucianism, you take Buddhism, you take Islam, they all, beloved, fall short of true divinity, true religion, if you will. It falls short. Six always falls short of seven. Six is a picture of missing the mark. Missing the mark for us is the essence of sin, right? Man misses the mark of what? Perfection. We fall short. That's the condition of man. That's his number, number six. So here we see 666. It belongs to Satan, who's the deceiver of men. This is not one individual who does the devil's work in history. I think we're going too far and out of bounds if we interpret it as that. Because there's always Antichrist, right? There's always been Antichrist. So the beast represents the false prophet. Revelation 19.20, beast is referred to as the false prophet, which is the spirit and work of Antichrist. The spirit and work of Antichrist. What did Jesus say? Matthew 24, verse 24. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even who, beloved? The elect. 
The elect are those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the earth. And therefore, because their names are written, they cannot be deceived. They cannot be led astray. So in other words, it's not possible for God's people to be led astray. You will never, let me tell you, if you are in Christ, you will never fall prey to a cult. You will not adopt some ideology that is Jesus Christ plus works, Jesus Christ plus anything, fill in the blank. In Christ, you cannot be deceived. Even if you come close, you know, yeah, I, I'm starting to kind of adopt this philosophy. Oh, it won't be long if your name's written in the Lamb's book. He'll set you straight because he holds you. And he will not let you go. So with this second beast, we're, we're dealing not with political powers now that persecute from the outside, but this beast rather uh, attacks with false religion, or I, I put this down, false ideologies. False ideologies. Just as political powers persecute the church, false ideologies do the same thing. It's just that when the church is pe- persecuted by way of, uh, uh, of powerful entities and rulers, they come face at the church from the front The second beast comes in through an open window. He comes in the back door. He's very deceptive. Very tricky. He comes in stealth, like the stealth bomber. Can't be picked up on radar. That's why Christians have to be very discerning. Beware lest anyone deceit you with philosophy and empty deceit according to the traditions of man, the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ, Colossians 2.8. So the unique thing about this beast is that he operates as a religious or philosophical entity. Psychological, philosophical, ideological, whatever way you want to cut it, he promotes the power of the state by way of religion, by way of ideology. If you can't beat him, he joins them. Take, for instance, Freudian psychology. Freudian psychology, which is the basis for psychotherapy, is indeed outwardly very appealing. Seeming to have all the external answers, but on the inside, beloved, it is very demonic. I'm not talking about ghouls and goblins type of demonic. I'm I'm talking about deceptive. It exalts man. Freudian psychology exalts man, demeans God, and in the end, it scorns the biblical ethics of God. And that mindset, beloved, has invaded the church. Is Jesus plus Freudian psychology today, whether you realize it or not? Theory of evolution is one of the most deceiving ideals of human history. Here you have a collection of lies packaged in what is now referred to as scientific evidence. Man no longer thinking himself as a creature answerable to a creator, but he has risen out of primordial ooze. He's accountable to no one. Therefore, he can live as he pleases. And theistic evolution has also invaded the church, blaming God for it. He said it in emotion. Wrong. Cults. Any religious system, beloved, that denies Jesus as God is a cult and is of the spirit of Antichrist. Okay, now, if you have friends in these systems, they're deceived. It's the spirit of Antichrist. Jehovah's Witnesses, spirit of Antichrist. 
They deny the deity of Jesus Christ. Mormonism, spirit of Antichrist, they deny the deity of Jesus Christ. Unitarianism denies the deity of Jesus Christ. These are all systems of the Antichrist. Islam, they proclaim that Jesus is what? Oh, he's a great prophet, but he's not the son of God. That is the spirit of Antichrist. May we not fool ourselves, beloved. We're not all one big happy family. 1 John 2.22, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. 2 John 7, many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, flesh, such a one as the deceiver and the Antichrist. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, Satan disguises himself as an angel of what, beloved? is an angel of light. He doesn't come as this ghoul or this goblin or this heavy metal creature, right? (sighs) Like this. He comes by sleight of hand. He comes as an angel of light. He comes in a religious masquerade, an ideological masquerade. That's what he does. Any religion, any philosophy, any ideology that denies Christ as Lord and God, beloved, it is the Antichrist. So John is saying, whatever point in history you live in, beloved, you'll have to cope with the spirit of Antichrist. You you see it today. Anti, by the way, doesn't mean against. Anti means in place of. In place of. Antichrist is one that masquerades as a kind of Christ. Antichrist is one who masquerades as a kind of savior, a kind of hope, the answer, if you will. Political, Political correctness in our day. If you want to be in with the world, you have to be politically correct because then you are a kind person. You're accepting of all peoples, all peoples and all creeds, right? It's the spirit of Antichrist. So there is an ideological battle going on here. There's a power battle for the hearts and minds of men. It wants everyone whose name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, yet in the process will persecute those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life because they refuse to say, yes, we adopt that thinking. It is our Jesus plus your who's ever. We say no, therefore, you're persecuted. You kids in college, okay, you're sitting before those who sit in the seat of scorners, right? And they scorn you because they scorn Christ. They don't like you because they hate the Christ that you love. Because they hate the Christ who loves you first. That's why you love him. So they want to expose you. They want to mock you. They want to ridicule you. Stand strong, beloved. Stand strong. Because we know their end, don't we? We know their end in Revelation 19. The beast was captured with the false prophet who's in the presence, who's in its presence, had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain, hear this, by the sword that comes from the mouth of him, that's Jesus, who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Sword of the Spirit coming out of Jesus' mouth is his word. He is Logos. He is word. He's judge. So the dragon persecutes by way of the first beast, world powers, and he deceives by way of the second beast, religious, philosophical, philosophical ideologies at any given day and any given time, including ours today. 
So there's always going to be powers, beloved. There'll always be Nero's. There'll always be Napoleon's. There'll always be Stalin's. There'll always be Hitler's. They'll come and go. But there'll also be ideologies that come and go. Something new. It's actually not nothing, anything new. It's just repetitious. It's just repackaged, really. His lies are the same. And all of this lasts and is limited for 42 months. 42 months, three and a half years, 1,260 days, time, times, and half a time, once again, are all synonymous terms for the time between the first and second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It means a time of trouble that comes to an end. Three and a half is short of seven. This will end. So the church has always asked itself, is this the last of the last days, beloved? The church has always asked that, and we are right to be asking the same question. We need to ask, is this the last of the last days? And the answer is what? You better believe it is, because at such a time as you think not, the Son of Man, then he will appear. I don't think he's coming back this afternoon, but that's exactly when he'll come. Right? Oh, he's a coming. The trumpet's going to sound. And all those whose names have been written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world, they are able, they are enabled to stand in the midst of this opposition while they wait for a new heaven and a new earth, beloved. See, the kingdom came with his coming the first time. And it will be fully consummated when he comes the second time. And the naked eye cannot see the kingdom. It is only the eye of faith that conceived the kingdom, that can perceive the kingdom and see its power and its growth because it's gospel-driven and is a, it is a gospel-saving kingdom. And he pulls one lost soul from the darkness and brings them into the life at a time. One at a time. Through your gospel witness and the testimony of Jesus Christ. As you proclaim this truth. So the time, beloved, between D-Day and V-Day is very scary if you lose a scriptural, biblical perspective of life because it is not to be scary for those that are God's people whatsoever. You should not be scared by this demon, this dragon, the first beast, or the second beast. Not at all. You are a saved, secured people. As I wrap up, I want you to know something that's buried in our text. Again, this is not dualism. This is not Satan who stands opposed to God and has the same power he has. Oh no, beloved. All power he has is a delegated, permitted power. Notice what's in our text. Back in verse 5, the beast, he was what? Given a mouth. Verse 5 again, the beast was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. In verse 7, the beast was allowed to make war on the saints. Again, in verse 7, the beast was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. Notice the repetition. He was given, he was allowed, he was allowed, he was given. He has nothing of his own except lies. He's the father of lies, amen? He's a murderer from the beginning. So everything that the beast has, everything that the beast does is permitted by the one who has all power in his hand is Jesus Christ. Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate and he wouldn't answer Pontius Pilate and Pontius Pilate said, do you not know I have authority to crucify you? And what did Jesus say? You'd have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. So he did have the power delegated to him to the Father to say, crucify him. But he came for you is he wrote your name in the book of life before the foundation of the earth. That's why he came. That's why it was allowed for him to order Jesus to be crucified. God is sovereign. 
not the dragon, not the beast. All of this is granted by God. So there'll always be worldly powers. There'll always be superpowers, but there's never supreme powers in government, beloved, because he's the supreme one alone. No, 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 no nation is supreme. It's all delegated authority. And remember this, Jesus is the subject of scripture, not the dragon. We're just given this picture right in the middle of Revelation of the dragon and how he operates and why he does what he does by God's grace for us to encourage you. So what does it mean for us who live between D-Day and V-Day? What does it mean as we face the fury of the dragon? What does it mean as we come uh, in front of the ploys of the second beast? Number one, it means this. The dragon and the beast are both on a chain. They're both on a leash. And again, they can only do what God allows them to do. Never forget that, beloved. Never forget that. He's the sovereign. He can only do actually what advances the kingdom of God. If you're suffering through cancer, it's according to the sovereign will of God. As much as it hurts and as much pain as there is, be encouraged, beloved, God is no less sovereign in the midst of our suffering. When we lose loved ones, he's in no less sovereign control. Oh, it hurts. It's painful. But Jesus said in this life, you will what? You will suffer. But we can rejoice because I, he said, have overcome the world. And I came to overcome the world on your behalf so that you can be a hopeful people with great expectation. So suffering that Christians endure for the sake of the gospel, they're not accidental, beloved. We see that in verses 9 and 10. If it's appointed for you to die by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. These are part of God's plan. But this raises the question, beloved, that we see in Romans 8. What can separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation? Because you're going to suffer tribulation. What about distress? Because as Christians, you're going to suffer distress. What about persecution? As Christians, you're going to experience some kind of suffering. Uh, what about famine? Some of you will face famine. What about nakedness? Some of you will be locked up and, 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 and stripped of your clothing for my name's sake, he says. What about danger or sword? Answer, no. In all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who what? Who loved us. Greater love has no one than this. That he lays down his life for his friends. So Jesus has everything. The beast has nothing. The beast has nothing that's not delegated to him. Jesus holds all things in his hand. Who holds the keys of death in Hades? Revelation 1.18. Jesus. Who holds the seven golden lampstands representing the church universal throughout all time and all ages? Jesus. Who took the scroll from the hand of the Father? Jesus. Equal authority. Who holds the book of life in which is written the names of his elect? Jesus. So regardless of the opposition that may come against us, beloved, from the beast, none of it can ever threaten your eternal reward, which is a new heaven and a new earth. Remembering that while we're called to endure to the end, your eternity was secured in the land's book of life before he made angels and before he made this cosmos. That's when he thought about you. That's when he predetermined your destiny. And he came to pay for it at the cross. So I want to leave you with this this morning. You need not ever fear the dragon. You need not ever fear the first beast or the second beast if you belong to the lamb who was slain ever.
Never. He's the image of the invisible God. His victory is real, so therefore your security is sealed. You're paid for. You're a bought, a purchased people. Do you know Christ? Have you placed your faith in Christ alone? Do you believe in some of these ideologies? Do you believe that Jesus is one of many ways? Beloved friends, if you believe that Jesus is one of many ways, you're not saved. You're not saved. You must repent of those false ideologies. You must repent of good works. And you must submit yourself to the one who came in the place of sinners, who upheld the law, laid down his life, and then had the power to take it up again. He ascended to the Father. He's on the throne. He rules and he reigns. He bore the wrath of the Father on the cross. To reject him is to reject the only way to heaven. You must repent, and you must put your faith and trust in Christ alone. Then you'll realize that your name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the earth. He doesn't add to it. He just reveals to those who are saved that it's already written there. So you must repent. You must believe. So in Christ, beloved, you share in his D-Day. And if you share in his D-Day, which, which, which was the cross, you will indeed experience V-Day. That is heaven. That is a new heaven and a new earth. Faith in, faith in Christ alone is assurance that you will not die alone. Ever. So decision day promises victory day here, beloved. The cross of Christ guarantees the heaven of Christ. Are you with me this morning? So again, verse 10. Here is a call. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the exhortation We thank you for the eyes to see. We thank you for the ears to hear um, the glories of the gospel. We thank you for the kingdom that was established at your first coming. And we look forward with hopeful expectation to the consummation of that kingdom. Just as D-Day secured our place in V-Day, Lord, I pray for your people this morning that as they persevere by faith, that whatever they face, whatever temptations, whatever struggles, whatever doubts, Lord, may they constantly be reminded of the cross and what was provided there. The love of Christ laid down for his friends. Strengthen the weak this morning, Lord. Heal those that are sick and ailing. Lift up the faint-hearted. May the hopeless walk out greatly hopeful, because of what's been accomplished and the promise of the future. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.